0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Chris Betts from Transient Artisan Ales in Bridgman, Michigan. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cool. We're going to talk about all sorts of beers that uh, Chris makes, everything from hazy IPAs and, uh, and pale ales to barrel-aged beers, big stouts, pastry stouts. Uh, probably going to jump in a little bit and talk about uh, some of the spontaneous beers that they brew. But first, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol-chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. And Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry's blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best-kept juicy secret and craft beverage for years, but now the secret's out. Breweries across the board are experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard fruit train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com brewer they're up there in Michigan, just like you, Chris. Oh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about um, your arc through brewing, how you got interested in it, um, you know, and in a quick sense, uh, what that arc looked like to get you where you are today, having launched your own brewery, Transient Artisan Ales, and, and uh, been operating that brewery for the last few years.
1: Okay. Uh, I'll give you just kind of a little bullet point kind of thing. Um, so I started home brewing in college, uh, sophomore year. Made some terrible beer, um, stopped for a little bit and then picked it up. You know, got more serious about it, it was brewing every weekend. Uh, and that was about the time I started working for Two Brothers Brewing. Oh, cool. I was a bartender and server there. Right. Um, after a little bit, I moved on to Jolly Pumpkin to bartend there and finally got a job brewing at uh, Witch's Hat in Michigan. So, brewed there for about six months, uh, got a job opportunity. Back in Illinois, moved home, uh, worked for One Trick Pony for about a year, and uh, all under the idea that I would open my own brewery there, kind of as a gypsy brewer, Sure, um, sure. rent space from them, have my own tanks, and uh, produce my own product. So that would be about six years ago now. Right. Um, so I operated it uh, as a gypsy brewer for about two and a half years to three years, somewhere around there, sure. before opening up my tap room in Michigan. Uh, jumped around Gypsy Brewed at a few other locations, Hailstorm and uh, Aquanaut, yeah. uh, and then opened the tap room three years ago now. And uh, in Bridgman, Michigan, southwest corner of the state, right on Lake Michigan. Uh, originally, I had been traveling back and forth between South Line, which is on the east side of the state, uh, back to Illinois, kind of every weekend, and really kind of fell in love with Southwest Michigan. It's the fruit capital of the Midwest. Uh, that's where I was able to get my first... Group of barrels from wine barrels, and yeah uh, it just seemed like the best place to put a wild focused brewery uh, if we we're going to look for the best potential atmosphere for a spontaneous brewery, it seemed like the fruit capital of the Midwest would be it
0: so that was the goal then the the idea with transient was to and I guess the name even kind of speaks to that idea that uh, you know to build a brewery that was focused on spontaneous fermentation, yeah,
1: make something kind of that was unique every batch that. You know, we have our amount of control over in our process and there's still a bit left to change every single time and we don't necessarily want to put out the same product every time, we want to put out a good product every time. Yeah. But we're fine with it changing over over the course of its lifespan, each batch, and that each particular beer to continue to change and develop, you know, through natural fermentation and re fermentation of the bottle and aging.
0: And I know, you know, we've got some pictures of this in craft beer and Brewing magazine from a breakout brew story that we did, uh, I think a couple of years ago. Uh, so anyone who's a subscriber can just dig in and, and uh, get some of the visuals to go along with that. Talk to me a little bit about your spontaneous process, you know, um, you know, what, how you envision it, uh, how it might differ from other kind of methods, uh, you know, um, you know, f- for spontaneous, uh, uh say, uh, uh, mashing and, uh, and war creation. Um, and then, uh, you know, I know you've got a, a kind of interesting cool ship, uh, program up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does that look like for you? Describe it to everybody.
1: So uh, our first couple batches, we did almost everything traditional, uh, turbine mash. Um, and obviously everything is cool ship inoculated overnight. Right. At temperatures where it doesn't get below freezing and doesn't really get above 40, um, for, you know, the entire night. Uh, usually brewed at the end of fall and the start of spring, um, with, like, a little bit of gap when it gets too cold to do a spontaneous beer.
0: Because you are in Michigan and it yeah. gets pretty, pretty damn cold yes, up there. Yes, it
1: does. Um, this year's been kind of weird okay. uh, in general because it's been mostly too warm to brew them. Interesting. In, in okay. the months that usually it would be too, too cold okay. to do it. Um, but so uh, the our, our process started as being very traditional um, and we moved away from the turbine mashing. Because we were not seeing any benefit to it, okay, uh, and it was breaking a lot of our mash paddles. It's, <laughs> turbine mashing is it's a, a real pain in the butt, and yeah. since we weren't seeing any real benefit aside from it being you know traditional, we moved away from that to just doing a higher mash temperature. So we're mashing in instead of you know a standard mash being at about 150 degrees Fahrenheit. We're at you know 160 on up, 165, something that produces a lot of starch instead of converting all the sugars. So then, you know, all the wild yeast and bacteria have, uh, have something to chew on over a longer period of time. Right. Right. So, uh, we use aged hops still. We do everything else still very traditional, uh, rack into the, the cool ship overnight, rack out when the beer is below about 75 degrees Fahrenheit, but usually above like 65, um, into oak barrels, the first year we went right into the barrels, without going into a, like a holding tank to mix it to homogenize everything, because everything kind of get gets stratified in that hmm. that uh, wort okay. overnight. So you have we would we, our first year we had just barrels that were. Real funky, and then we had another barrel that would be really sour, and then one that would be really kind of neutral from the same batch. Yeah, yeah. So from the second year on, we started homogenizing them in a tank or just gently stirring the cool shit before transferring into barrels. And we saw after that that we were getting more uniform. Each batch was kind of the same. Barrels okay. would have a little variation, but
0: sure, they. That's uh, what makes blending fun, though, right? Yeah,
1: and we would, we would still very you know we would still be able to blend between these barrels and sure. between different vintages and. And different batches, but we didn't have a single batch that would have one beer that is just completely right. bland and flavorless, and another one that's you know more way more sour, and one that's way more funky that you really have to put a lot more you know thought into like sure, how they're going to sure. blend out. So um, that was the biggest change that we've made to the spontaneous production. Uh, we do about 10 batches a year, uh, and each one fills four wine barrels or two puncheons. We have moved towards punchins, which are hundred and thirty two gallons yeah instead of the sixty gallon barrels, and we've found that those age a little bit gentler uh, we don't have as many like overly sour barrels huh. they have a little bit less oxygen ingress and uh, that kind of allows the the lactic acid bacteria to produce less acid okay. or the acetic acid bacteria sure that sure could potentially which we also we don't want that but right there's a little bit in several of them. Yeah. yeah.
0: Let's well, not, you know, in limited amounts, not the worst thing in the world. No. Next no, time. It, can, it can be yeah.
1: helpful even. It, it can round out a beer properly.
0: Have you done any studying of what ends up in this culture? Obviously, you're t- you're looking at this kind of wild, spontaneous, what's in the air, what's around you kind of culture. Um you know, but one of the obvious challenges with any kind of beer like this is, uh, you, you know, making the beer that the environment's going to make for you is one thing. Making beer that people want to drink is a whole other thing. And hopefully, those two things align. That becomes the big kind of challenge for spontaneous beer makers. How do you find that nexus of those two things? So, you know, for you, um, you know, are there other environmental factors that you've been able to kind of massage to to help? Um, you know the way that these things express to you know to to come out either more consistently or to uh, you know bring out other flavors uh, through that process that uh, you find uh, favorable in the beer.
1: the The biggest things that we've kind of adjusted uh, for that that end was the the homogenizing, um, the move to the punchins. Those yeah. were really big, uh, and also our hopping rate. Um, we're using aged hops, so it's it's kind of you know, a crapshoot. You don't know what the alpha acid actually is. Um And based on what, who you talk to or what you read, the the hopping rate for a, like a Lambic style beer is pretty vast. Um, yeah, yeah. So at, at first we were just- The range just, of hopping yeah, rates, sure. We were experimenting between, you know, like a quarter of a pound per barrel. Yeah. um, Like a 60 minute edition up to like, two to three pounds per barrel and we were getting just you know a variety the, the ones that had way more hops had less acidity and that favored um you know the saccharomyces and the britannomyces that were landing in the beer inoculating overnight uh the ones that had less hopping had more lactic acid activity and we kind of adjusted that to we're right now around like a half to three quarters of a pound uh okay. per barrel so those two things the, the adjustment with homogenizing and the, the adjustment with the hops have kind of given us a more uniform product. Um, it did mean that some of our first year batches, we did 10 that year, so we had 40 barrels. Uh, I, th- we, I think we ended up dumping about 10 of those because they're either one direction or the other. They were either bland and flavorless or yeah. and had really no you know, wild character, or they were just too far down the, the sour line or, or unpleasant in one way. And we didn't want to even worry about trying to blend them out with anything else.
0: How much variation uh, throughout a brewing season does, does time have for you? You know, if you're doing multiple batches or, you know, 10 batches a year uh, you know, how much variation is there from batch to batch based on whatever might be happening in that specific night or that, you know, that week for that matter Uh, you know, and, and how impactful is that on the, you know, on the beer that you end up making for those?
1: Um, I would say as long as we're hitting those temperatures properly and brewing on the days that are best or what we kind of know to be best yeah. um, it it's I don't think that is necessarily what is translating to like differentiation between all these batches or barrels okay um, because we haven't I know uh, some other great breweries have done you know a much warmer you know inoculation or even a much colder one sure that's not something we've really experimented with um we've kind of stick st- like stuck to the, the small range that we have heard and and kind of experienced works well for those beers and i'd say we get more variation just on their own than on the batch to batch based on temperature because we're always trying to brew during those same yeah those same time periods that have the same kind of temperature
0: uh it does get very cold in Michigan. Do you temperature control these barrels as they're going through the aging process? Do you allow some fluctuation? You know, what's your philosophy around that kind of thing?
1: So the the barrel side of our building for the spontaneous beer, um, it is temperature controlled, but not to a great extent. Uh, I think right, we sent right. the the thermostat to like the- yeah, it's like it's set to like eighty two or eighty four in the summer, and I think we said to like. 60, maybe high fifties okay. in the winter. Um, and I think that might, you know, the, the, you know, the swelling of the barrels over the, that temperature change right. is doing something. It's, it's sure, pushing sure. liquid into and out of that Oak. And that's something that we want to see. We don't want, you know, fully temperature controlled barrels. I think that wouldn't necessarily show the, the spontaneous, uh, like culture properly. Yeah. But then again, it's, it's still so much up in the air that we're, we're controlling such a small amount that we, we hope it's doing something beneficial, but there's no real way for us to know based on what we have in front of us. Yeah. Does that,
0: you know, as I'm trying to think about that, I would assume that there's a different fermentation dynamic to what you might be brewing in the fall season versus, what you're brewing in the, the spring season, just because, yeah. you know, that fall season. Fall it, season will go through the cold. It's going to go through the cold. Before right, that, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Do you see that? I mean, how does that reflect for you guys? I would say
1: our batches, year to year, uh, will have variation, but I wouldn't say it is all that, you know, fall, spring. You know, it, I wouldn't okay, separate sure. barrels or batches that way. Right. Um, the I think the variations happening in other... In other ways, um, different styles of barrels that were, barrels that we're filling, huh. um, and the different things we're doing with our process that we've changed over those first. Uh, we're now in our fourth year of spontaneous production, so those first three years we 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 were altering parts of our process. So I think now that we're working into a point where we know our process and and our hopping rate and what kind of barrels we're filling and the time of of a uh, month and the temperature that we're filling them at. I think now we'll be able to see maybe more uh from other factors like that.
0: When you say the barrels that you're filling, uh you are you just talking about the difference between punchins and, and smaller barrels, or are are you using different types of uh wine uh barrels or punchins? So, or is there some variety there in the barrel sourcing?
1: Uh we've done the both the wine uh punchins and standard wine uh casks and some spent uh spirit barrels as well. Um actually for the the festival tomorrow we have an absinthe barrel uh a spontaneous beer that we're bringing out we've we have done a couple in should, i should
0: probably uh, you know oh. reference that we are up here in uh, breckenridge colorado for the uh, uh big beers belgians and barley wines uh, yeah, festival that, yeah. that's
1: the one that it'll be released for yeah. um and that'll be released in our tap room eventually um but uh yeah, we we do fill some spirit barrels. We have some gin barrels filled right now. Uh we filled some bourbon barrels with not the greatest results. Okay. Um they took on they were already used for a stout and then they were steamed and cleaned to hopefully take away any potential Saccharomyces right, that's right. from those stouts, but uh they didn't turn out great. They still had a lot of bourbon character and okay. and they developed a lot of color from the char in the barrel and they just didn't taste right. Those that was a good bit of one year's production that we ended up dumping. It was about 8 it was two full batches of so like eight bourbon barrels. That, it's a tough, it's like, okay, learning. We're not, tough yeah, learning process. Yeah, it right is. There. And it's like, well, we we have these barrels. Why not try them again? Because we right. have used them. Have used bourbon barrels before uh, secondary use for like a sour red ale. Yeah, where some bourbon character is nice and it's sure, complimentary. Sure. But for something a little more delicate like a spontaneous beer, it did not work out as we hoped.
0: Um, talk to me a little bit about blending, you know, how much, how how much of a a role does blending play in your uh, spontaneous beer program? Definitely for the first couple of
1: years where we were not doing the homogenization and we had to blend between some pretty different types of beer and, and we were blending, uh, a product that we have never, you know, worked with before up to that point, we were only doing, you know, pitched sours that we knew what was in them. It would normally come out kind of how we expected, and often it was only blended between similar beers and similar barrels, not between different vintages and different batches. So uh, it was kind of a learning curve uh, just from the blending standpoint, something I had never done before. Uh, So it took a lot to kind of get used to it and try to put out something that's similar batch to batch, but not necessarily the same, which is... I think, very difficult to do. Sure and, the, sure, and the people that do it so well, you know, that's like Cantillon and all the other great Lambic producers, that's why they're great because they can take a bunch of different products and put out something that's pretty similar and or like, shoot, like Jolly Pumpkin that will put out all these different sour beers that are blended between many barrels and like La Roja, tastes like La Roja right, almost every right. time you have it. And that's, you know, a testament
0: to how good they are at just blending that's something we're still learning. It takes a long time. Talk to me about that learning process. I mean, what does what does that learning process look like for you?
1: Uh, it's it's sampling a lot of beers that don't do everything on their own, uh, and you're just trying to figure out what they're missing. And yeah,
0: um, what is the what are the mechanics though? You know, and this is always something that's fascinating to me. I mean, are you know are you pulling out? Uh, you know, percentages uh, or pulling out samples of each and then testing how varying percentages of each thing, uh, you know, may reflect or bring things out, you know, uh, Most of the time, these flavors don't work in linear fashions. You know, it's not like if I just had 10% more of this, it's just going to do this. It doesn't ever work that way. It's like, you know, you go from 10% of this in the blend to 20%. It's like, oh, this sucks now. You know, it's not like I just got a little bit more of what I wanted. It just took it to a whole different direction. Talk to me a little bit about that, understanding the way that certain characters in these blends uh, you know, some elements of these might have outsized influences that, uh, you know, completely destroy this linear idea of how these things might work.
1: So I would say the biggest influence on and and, and kind of restraint that we have uh, with such a small program. I mean, I think it's, it is a lot of our space that's taking up. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, our, our heart, but it's a small program. We're only putting out, we're only filling 40 barrels a year. Uh, the difficult part is that It you can't really, or in our size, you can't really do like a partial barrel, otherwise, you have to dump the rest of that barrel somewhere. You can't just leave all the headspace from what you just emptied out. So, we're looking to make a blend that is you know, this barrel, this barrel, that barrel, that barrel, right? Um, and you need to make it work from full barrel stock, right? Unless you're going to just pull off some as a straight barrel blend, which we've done in very small amounts, like fill like a keg and just do right, like, that's right. a just this. Sure. Uh, otherwise we're, we're just working full barrels and our batches aren't that big. So normally it's between a two and a five wine barrel blend or right. like one punch and two wine barrels, something around uh, that volume. So we're, we're really kind of uh, restricted by making a blend that makes sense and is somewhat similar to other batches that we've done with that restraint.
0: Yeah. I want to switch gears and, you know, obviously spontaneous is a big part of what you do, but, uh, probably not the bulk volume of, of the beer yeah. that people buy from you. And so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, you know Hazy IPAs and then some of your kind of pastry stout approach. Before we do that, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest of standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you'd want and expect from your supplier of pro-brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, did you know the breweries that serve food see an increase in revenue of 1.8x? Second Kitchen is a food tech startup that connects local breweries to iconic neighborhood restaurants to help provide your brewery with food experiences that keep customers in your taproom longer. Second Kitchen provides the technology, support, custom menus, and more, all at no cost to your brewery. So let's talk a little bit about hazy IPA, Chris. I, you know, I know uh, it can. You know, some people look at it as the thing you have to make in order to, you know, uh, uh, sell beer out of a brewery and support the things you love. Uh, you know, but I, I get the feeling that you actually do enjoy making those beers too, right. and have a, a, a point of view to what you do. Uh, there's definitely a dryness, uh, you know, in addition to that kind of juicy character that I've sensed out of out of the beers uh, that I taste. You know, from you, talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know. As you know, as you think about building a house character around these kind of juicy and hazy beers, uh, in how you think about those things and then how, you know, from there, how you've made some, you know, recipe decisions and process decisions in order to kind of support this idea of how you want those flavors to express.
1: Yeah. So we started brewing, um, some hazy IPAs and pale ales uh, pretty early on, uh, well before the tap room, we started brewing them for our beer release events. So we would do this bottle membership event release that was every like three to six months. It would be all sour beers, um, the occasional Imperial Stout, but otherwise all sour beers on tap. And then we'd make like one batch of IPA that I would make as like a 15-gallon batch for people that kind of like have a palate refresher. And that beer was always based on um, the, the the IPAs I really loved. Um, Still today and at the time, which uh, was kind of like the the hill farmstead and uh, you know alchemist style, which is both juicy and and hazy, but you know more dry and and like refreshing, um, something that you'd want to drink several of. Uh, so when we were first making these hazy IPAs, that was the goal. We wanted something that was that direction and not necessarily um, the other direction that a lot of other breweries have, have taken it, which is a little bit sweeter, um, and, you know, big, juicy, fruity flavors. I, I love the, you know, juicy flavor, but I also want something that is, that finishes pretty crisp kind of at the end. And early on, we were, you know, doing a lot more heavier carbonation and doing, um, you know, lower finishing gravities and, but still with the same, you know, hop usage, still just packing, packing it, uh, with uh dry hop and and late edition hops, so uh, we first started making uh obligatory that was kind of our original i p a and uh then slowly started adding some others when we added our tap room uh, and then started canning and it kind of took over like half of our production pretty quick um,
0: <laughs> yeah, careful what you wish for yeah,
1: yeah, but um we knew all along when we ended up opening a tap room that that would be a necessity um and sure, sure. Before we had the taproom, we didn't have any tanks that really would work for making an IPA. We didn't have any uh, temperature-controlled tanks, and uh, and we didn't really have the need to do that. Right? We were making just saisons, um, right. which was you know our our focus. And then with the taproom, well, just like with the the beer release events, you can't just have saisons and sours because even the people that love those need a break every once in a while, or else they're just going to leave and go to the next place. Correct? So. Um, we started with obligatory and added juices loose and then we were kind of selling out faster than we could produce them. Um, And that just evolved into us canning and that turned into us having several more clean fermenters than, than originally planned.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, both malt and hop selection in that as well. And I would love to, you know, kind of talk about where you, what you shoot for gravity wise on some, on these beers. Yeah. So,
1: um the original one obligatory the the idea was that we just want to use what is my favorite malt uh golden promise um okay. it's just an excellent uh european malt it's a little bit darker uh lovebound than than most of what's used in the juicy juicy beers nowadays that uh really use a lot of pilsner um and then we slowly worked in Pilsner and beers like cremulin and juices loose, um especially the ones that are getting a little bit higher in uh a b v to keep them not tasting like too big or too malty okay, we still wanted to finish crisp, so um yeah, we started adding Pilsner malt and other than that, you know you just rounded it out On with Liz's
0: bigger beers? What does that look like in terms of Pilsner malt to golden promise
1: um on uh, juices loose it's about 50 okay. 50 for those two bases <clears throat> and they both all of our beers kind of work in oats and, right, and wheat right. and we took the approach <clears throat> early on that it was a lot like how we make our saisons where they all have usually just a base malt or two yeah. and then they have other uh grains that kind of would accentuate where we want to go with it most all of our saisons have oat and wheat as well in different quantities some have rye um Depending on what we want to pull out from that beer, so we approach the hazy beers the same way. Every single one of them has oats. Nearly every single one of them has wheat. Um, oats and wheat go yeah. for both of those things. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, And they both have their their benefits to both styles. Sure, sure.
0: Um, Are there some specific uh, specific oats and wheats that uh, wheat uh, that you really enjoy using?
1: Uh, we use we use a lot of uh, torrified wheat. Okay. Um, In both our Saison's and our Hazy IPA's. Uh, We have used quite a bit of flaked wheat as well. And then uh, we use a lot of golden naked oats. Yeah. As well as malted oats and flaked oats. Um, And depending on the beer, sometimes we go one direction or the other. Yeah. Um, Golden naked oats are kind of one of my favorites uh, out of any malt. Uh, But flaked oats give a little bit better body
0: and they don't add as much sweetness. I love that there's almost um, there's this commonality between your kind of malt approach to both your saisons and your IPAs, and yeah. they they have all of that kind of in common with each other. Yeah,
1: and but, it it, it kind of in in my mind, um, you're pretty much just making a canvas that both those hazy IPAs and saisons have a lot of character coming from the yeast, right? So the other things that you're doing is pretty much just building your mouthfeel or or you know any, any other thing like your head retention. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're looking for in the malt. It's not necessarily looking for over the top character. We're not using a lot of like crystal or anything that's going to add like sweetness or any other, yeah. you know, fruit flavor in that direction. Uh, we're trying to just start with like a canvas that the yeast and in the hazy IPA you know, the hops, yeah, they can do the, the real work, but it has a good starting point. You know to go from
0: yeast wise on the hazy IPAs. Uh, you know, are you open to telling you know talking about what you use?
1: Yeah. Um. So early on, right when we started, we were just culturing up yeast from uh, cans of heady Topper. So that would be the the Conan yeast. Right. Right. Um. When we started brewing like commercial batches, that wasn't as feasible right. uh, because sure. all the generations we'd have to go through to build up that yeast right. would change it. Uh, considerably so by the time we had enough to do a commercial batch it wouldn't taste necessarily the same especially for our method for yeast propagation which yeah. is not you know as as good as like a lab sure obviously um when we started doing commercial batches we we did a mix of uh london 3 uh which is probably Uh, what you'd expect from Hill Farmstead and Tired Hands, they use London 3, and now it's a lot of breweries use it. Uh, It's a very reliable English yeast, Um, and we would mix in Conan as well. At about a a, a 3 to 1 ratio, uh, London 3 to Conan. Um, Why go
0: through that trouble?
1: uh, (laughs) I didn't think either on their own were as good as when they were mixed. Okay. Um, When we would do... Uh, just Conan on its own for commercial batches, we were getting some inconsistency with uh, finishing gravity. Uh, when we started adding in the London Three, we were very consistent without losing any like real character. And in fact, I thought you know the the aroma and flavor was even better. Yeah. And we had we knew where it would finish at if huh. we did everything else right. If we hit our our temperature in the mash right, and uh, you know hit our gravities right, we would have the proper finishing gravity. Whereas when we were just using just Conan still up in the air um, and okay. it could vary uh, like two to four gravity points which isn't huge but it's something. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's a it's half a percentage True. alcohol and, and that, that ends up being either sweetness or dryness right. at a direction away from what we want. Um, recently we've been doing um, Just London 3 um, and we kind of bounced back and forth and now Just London 3 has been every time has been perfect. It, it huh. finishes where we want it it finishes dry still. If we have a beer that we aren't looking for, you know, that dryness, we can just add uh, non-fermentable sugars, whether it be maltodextrin or lactose. Uh, the we, old lactose yeah, trick, yeah. Um, when we do either of those, we do them in pretty small quantities, you know, somewhere around, you know, 15 to 20 pounds for 15 barrels. So, yeah. very small, just to add like a point to two points. If we expect it to finish drier, we we're...
0: Yeah. Wanting. What is what is your goal for that kind of end gravity? You know, what what is that gravity that you want people to taste in the in the can? Uh
1: so yeah, for instance, like Cromulant, which is my favorite pale ale we make. Um probably the one the pale ale that we make more than anything else, with juice being like the the double IPA we right. make more than anything else. Uh Cromulant we want to finish between um ten oh eight and ten ten. So two to two and a half Play Doh. Um juice is loose, we expect that to finish at about ten fourteen. It has finished up to ten eighteen. Um but normally ten fourteen to ten sixteen. So fairly
0: dry yeah, for, for the sure. for the style. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Not not dry for Saison, but dry for HIPA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very significantly dry. How uh you know, aiming for that kind of dryness uh has other impacts on flavor. Certainly yeah. has an impact on the way that people perceive that kind of uh fruitiness and the hops character. How do you how do you balance that? Are you uh dry hopping at a larger degree in order to kind of cover for that? Or uh uh do you simply enjoy the you know the kind of drier approach uh you know and that kind of more subtle the subtle hoppiness or fruitiness?
1: So I I prefer the the dryness. Um we we still push for that the big dry hop we still do two large um dry hop additions and a very substantial double whirlpool and hop stand addition um so we're still hopping at the rate of, of most of the other you know east coast style producers yeah
0: uh it sounds like a little more hot side uh and, and whirlpool than we do
1: uh, a, yeah we on some of our beers we'll do like a 15 minute edition um as well to give it a little bit more uh flavor and a little bit of bitterness which I also prefer just yeah. like a touch of bitterness in uh in my IPAs. Um but the the fact that it finishes a little bit drier uh you know for me is the is the goal. And I know that yeah. that's not necessarily common taste. Um a lot of people that want the juicy IPA want a sweet beer. It's just not necessarily what I want um out of it. So we're fine kind of being the different one in the group, yeah, uh, yeah. At least in the Midwest, I know there's a few people that brew similar styles. Obviously, sure. The ones that we kind of model ourselves after, right, right. From the beginning, uh, still make very dry, uh, drinkable, hazy beers. Um, but yeah, we're not necessarily trying to chase a specific style that's being demanded currently. We want to make our version of the style, and we want it to kind of be unique ish.
0: How in general, you know, do your customers, uh, you know, respond to that? Uh, you know, how's that feedback look, you know, now, and it's such an interesting thing when you look at beer on a national kind of scale, you know, these cans that you release may end up, you know, shipped to trading partners all the way across the country. You know, their context is different. You know, they may not understand, you know, you have a different brand approach to how you make these kinds of things, you know, uh, but at the same time, like None of us in the world of brewing who are who are really involved uh, and, you know, have our livelihoods staked here really want to see an entire world of brewing where everyone's trying to make the same thing. Like, that is incredibly dull. It's not interesting at all for anyone if everyone is simply trying to make the same, you know, hazy IPA with the same level of sweetness and the same hops. I mean, it's just – that would be thoroughly boring. Yeah. Yeah, so – yeah. From your standpoint, how do you, you know, both identify and create this, uh, you know, and explain this approach also flip side, you know, as we start seeing people being more conscious about sweetness and then the way that they consume it, you know, we're also watching, you know, all, all trends are cyclical, all flavor, all palate thing. You know, they, these all move in different directions. You know, we are, I think, in some degree ways starting to see people start to seek out drier beers again uh, in small ways, you know. But uh, how how does this impact, you know, how you sell beer and how you think about beer and how you find the customers that are right for the beer that you want to make?
1: Yeah, so I would say um, one of the biggest things I've noticed in the last three years since we started kind of packaging and releasing these beers, and even the six years from when we started brewing, just right, like those right. those test batch kind of things that we we're putting out at releases, there's definitely been like a, a creep in uh, in in sweetness demand or tolerance. I don't know what right. you'd
0: say. Sure.
1: Um, so uh, initially, they were you know, about on par with like the West Coast styles for, for sweetness. Yeah. And, but they were, they were different in a lot of other ways. Sure. They were still a lot rounder and, and, and bolder with, with um, like that hop juiciness. Uh, and then as the years have gone by and people expect it to be a lot sweeter, it's kind of had like, they've, there's been a little bit of pushback and people just expect every hazy IPA that they drink to be, that tastes like a, a cup of juice. Right. Um, so, when we produce these beers and and then market them and sell them, we're not trying to, you know, build the expectation that that's what they're going to get. We try to still use the words that we think define our beer. Like we still say, may say like, this is juicy, but we will also say it's crisp and, and like refreshing as we think this beer should be. Um, So when we want to, you know, seek out our customers we hope that they're looking at you know the product and not just you know oh it's a hazy ipa you know it's got to be just like this other hazy ipa in in any character that we're looking for ours are going to be a little bit different in those regards
0: how does that influence uh, you know your hops choice you know d- does it influence it at all or uh, you know do you also have uh, you know your own likes and dislikes around those kinds of things
1: yeah, I have I have my own preferences on hops for sure. Um, I've been try- the the one thing I've really been trying to work in a lot more on our our juicy beers, hazy IPAs are some of these really fantastic local hops that we have that are they're varietals that are, have been around for you know ever sure, for the craft sure. beer scene in the U.S. like Cascade and Chinook, but they're being produced um, by by growers that are putting out a product that's completely different. Sure, if you were to sure. smell them side by side with, with like West Coast produced uh, Chinook, it's a different hop. It does not smell or taste anything alike.
0: I think you're right. I mean, years ago, I remember drinking a uh, New Holland IPA of some sort that was brewed with Michigan Cascades and like the strawberry notes. And they were like, "Where? Where did this, yeah. this is not Cascade that I'm familiar with?" Yeah. Um, you know, the terroir and the growing conditions uh, made for a completely different flavor expression. And that kind of hop that, that that certainly keeps things interesting. Talk to me a little bit about those Michigan hops and some of the varieties that you really enjoy.
1: So there, there are a couple. You know, my favorite uh, is Michigan Cascade, um, but Michigan Chinook is is equally impressive and and probably further from regular Chinook. Um, so Michigan Chinook is really pineappley, where like the West Coast Northwest uh, Chinook is more resiny and dank. Right. right. It's got a little bit of that, but it's more towards like the fruity, pineapple huh. side. side. Um, and everybody, all the other brewers I kind of have tried to introduce this to have just fallen in love with it. And they're right. like, I didn't know a Chinook
0: right, right. could
1: smell and taste like that. Um, but it's still kind of strange because people have that perception when I say, oh, we're releasing a beer that has citrus and Chinook. And they're like, well, you lost me at the second half of that. If you just kept the, the citrus, that'd been great. But um, we're trying to you know, educate the consumer in this regard that, right, you right. know, these are unique to us and they're, they're special and, and they're not going to taste like what, what you're thinking when you think of Chinook. So, uh, Cascade Chinook, uh, cashmere is another one from, huh. from Michigan. That's just excellent. Um, and there's a couple others. Michigan copper is really nice. And right. there's, there's a, a few others that they're developing. Um, and then they even have some old world, uh, varietals, some noble varietals like Saz that are just unique and and fantastic themselves uh, that we work into like our lagers and and other beers that, you know, would otherwise use, you know, continental European hops. Um, yeah. But we want to use something that's, we still love like German Hallertau, Middlefru and right. the, the the classic hops you use in a lager. But when we want to work in something kind of different and unique that still has some sort of ties to the European varietals that would traditionally be in that style, like our Helles that's yeah. dry hopped, we have uh, middle fruit and Michigan Cascade, and we've also used Laurel, which is a new German right. hop. But uh, just working in different things that uh, kind of just a little bit different to the the market uh, for
0: those styles. Yeah, uh, you know, using these kinds of uh, you know fruity or flavier more flavorful you know hops and these kind of styles uh, certainly. Brings its own challenges when you're brewing across these things. How do you uh, how do you envision and still kind of maintain an expectation for some of these more traditional styles, uh, you know? But at the same time, kind of you know approach that kind of more expansive uh, flavor opportunity.
1: Um, so when we definitely when we do our like more traditional styles like saisons and and loggers, uh, what the saisons that's always kind of just been an open an open page Like you can right, do whatever right. you want really. Um, there are a lot of traditional hops that you could use in them, but they do very well with anything like yeah, galaxy or right. Right. That was one of our, the first saison we ever produced was a galaxy saison, dry hopped with galaxy as well. Um, when it comes to loggers, that's something we're still learning a bit. Sure, um, sure. That's another one that has a, a pretty long learning curve. Yep. Um, and we're just trying to produce something that's, uh, good and and, (laughs) then sure sure something something you want to drink something something you're proud of to call your product and i i like fell in love with Hellas um last time i went to munich and i've been kind of obsessing over making up both a traditional one and and then this dry hopped one that uh that uses some local hops uh because for them they're using their local hops like we should have something that's kind of unique and it may not be a traditional german Hellas, but it is german Hellas inspired but we're trying to use our products to make something that's maybe not the same but you know equal, equally proud of our own
0: product at some point we'll have to, you know, discover a language to describe these things that may, you know, change the expectations around that because, yeah. you know, certainly Hellas has its own uh, expectation coming, you know, from that tradition and, you know, but at the same time, American uh, brewers, brewing lagers, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Highland park or you all, or, or uh, anyway, lots of creative expressions, uh, resident culture for that matter, yeah. uh, since you're wearing a their hoodie right now. Um, you know, looking at these kinds of you know creative lager expressions, uh, they are equally valid to you know the kind of uh, uh, highly attentive uh, "quote unquote" authentic. I hate using that word because I don't know that it really means that much, given that uh, there's such a variety of things to you know to be modeled after off of those original things. Um, you know, but having said that, there is room for creating these uh, interesting expressions that both feel like those beers, but feel like something that is also American and creative in our own. At the same time
1: yeah if, if i was just looking to make a clone of another beer i, I could easily do that but you know we right, want to put our own right. little take on it and still enjoy it as much as i enjoyed like that Augustiner hellas i had right. you know that was that blew my mind having that you know fresh sure, so sure. now i want to make something similar and have give that experience to somebody else that comes in my tap room even though it doesn't taste potentially like theirs right it could be unique and, and beautiful in its own way
0: yeah. So Chris, tell me what, what does success look like for you and for transient the nails? When will you know that you've achieved it? Maybe you already have, uh, you know, but what is, what does that look like? What is, what's the goal? What's the, uh, you know, when, when will you know? Um, we've
1: <laughs> the, the kind of joke we've, every time we do like a little expansion, it's, uh, I always say it's like, this is the last one. And every time it hasn't been the last one. Um, but I'm trying to, Eventually, hopefully, now just kind of this—this is the last one. I can just enjoy that we are making a good product, people are enjoying it and buying it, and um, you know we don't have any debt or any. That is success for me. That we have uh, staff that that are happy, um, well cared for, putting out a good product. They care about the product, and uh, you know that's it. And we can hopefully just. Settle down for a minute, and I can you know catch my breath and just yeah. appreciate the yeah. the bit of success that we've had. I think that's that would be success for me, being able to appreciate
0: where we're at right now. That makes sense. Nearly two thousand breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers, Old Orchard Supplies, Craft Juice Blends from the beer, heart of Beer City, USA. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you expect from your supplier of pro-brewing equipment. And Second Kitchen connects local breweries and iconic neighborhood restaurants to keep customers in your tap room longer. Chris, if people want to learn more about Transient Artisan Ales, where do they find you?
1: Uh, So our website is a great source of information, uh, transientartisanales.com. It has our tap list and ours um, and our to-go menu as well. Uh, our Facebook page is updated almost every day with, you know, any events that we have coming sure. up um, and they can always reach out to us at transientartistnails at gmail.com. We get back to them as soon as we're able. <laughs> we're, we're a small sure, team of sure. about five people. So it, it, yeah. it's not always that moment, but we, we do our best to, uh, to respond to, to questions and, and concerns.
0: Well, all the best to you and continuing to pump out uh, flavorful, characterful beers. Um, if you've enjoyed the conversation that we've had uh, please go to beer and click on the subscribe button uh, you can pull up uh, our Android or iOS apps and read the breakout brewer story on Transient Artemis Nails I don't know exactly which issue that was in I'm going to have to look it up uh, but it is right there and some photos of Chris and his operation uh, I know things have changed since then I can't wait to see uh, what it looks like now i got to get up there sometime yeah, soon Absolutely, Chris thanks for joining me on the podcast thank you for having me yeah, cheers cheers